0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Crypto Scam with your host, Tone Vase. We are continuing the Ethereum series. This is going to be part three um, of Crypto Scam Ethereum. Uh, If you recall, in episode one, we talked about the regulatory issues that Ethereum could potentially face and why I consider them to be totally centralized as the regulators can easily take them down. In part two, me and Johnny Dilley discussed the idea of smart contracts and why do smart contracts need to be decentralized from a conceptual perspective. In this third episode on Ethereum, we are going to get into the tech a little bit and talk about the scaling problems uh, that Ethereum is already facing and they're only going to get more complicated over time And there will be at least one more on Ethereum. I could probably do at least five more. uh, But there will be at least one more talking about the economic incentive of having an application token. Uh, But with us today for this episode to talk about the scaling of Ethereum is uh, someone I've been trying to get on for a while now. Uh, His name is Stop and Decrypt uh, with an awesome Twitter account that has written uh, two of the most amazing comprehensive articles that I've read. Uh, Summarizing the Ethereum scaling issue. Uh, So Stop, thank you for joining us Uh, Thank you for having me. All right, so for uh, several reasons uh, Stop has decided not to show his face and uh, We blurred out his camera a little bit. uh, So this will be uh, a really good uh, kind of investigative journalism uh, to talk about it and uh, Here, let me uh, throw on the screen your Twitter profile, and all of these links will, of course, be uh, in the video description. But you definitely want to follow him on Twitter, where uh, he points out a lot of the technical issues with Ethereum and uh, several other things. He also has a great article out uh, helping you build your full node, uh, which is really, really important. And we're going to get into that in this episode. Uh, so once again, thanks, Stop, for uh, joining me on this episode. Hey, let's start with your background a little bit. Uh Sure. Uh so how long have you been in the crypto space and what got you into it and what year was that?
1: Um the f- there there I guess there are two moments where I first heard about it and like barely paid attention and then the moment when I like really dug deep into it all. When I first heard about it, uh like everybody else, I think it was a slash dot article. Uh, that led me to looking into it. And that had to be around 2011, because I have a, I have an email, a confirmation email from, I, th- I think it was Bitcoin.cz, which is what slush pool used to be from 2011. And I remember mining for maybe only a week, but I stopped because it just didn't make any sense. Uh, I would have made like 13 bucks a month, uh, one Bitcoin a month. At the time, it just didn't make any sense to me. And I had no foresight. I had no understanding of what was going on. So I dropped out, stopped paying attention to it until about 2013 when it started going up to 1,000. I think a lot of people did that. And um, I, I read a little more. I got a little more interested, but never really followed through again. I, I At one point, I considered buying a Butterfly Labs miner. Uh, I'm glad I didn't do that. I was going to split it with a friend, but.
0: Yeah, no, it, uh, I was going to say, no, it's, uh, it's good that you were around back in the GPU mining days. And, and that is crazy. And that's what I always tell people. Uh, the most money you will make from mining is if you have the capital to hold on to that Bitcoin three to four years after you mine it. Because you have no idea what that environment will be at the time. And even if you can get on and mine for X amount of time and then sit on that Bitcoin long enough, it'll get you all of your money back, which is difficult to do if you want to be a perpetual miner. You got to have like a real uh, backup of fiat so you can actually wait out and, ri- and ride a bull market.
1: Yeah, I was young. I had no foresight. Uh, so
0: I just, I didn't, I didn't follow through with any of it. Well, you were in, you were in before me, so you had some foresight there. Um uh, so let me ask you another question, uh, since you've been around for a while, uh, because I was around before Ethereum made its announcement. I mean, I came in in like 2013.
1: Yeah, oh. I wasn't that involved. I only heard of Ethereum when I came back after I dropped out in like 2015.
0: Ah, okay. So you weren't there for the crowd sale stuff of Ethereum. Yeah, I was like only touching gotcha.
1: the surface during 2013, 2014.
0: Gotcha. I need and to man. get Kevin Pham on. Maybe I'll do, maybe there'll be a part five. I'll mm. sum everything up with Kevin uh, because I, th- I know Kevin was around. He even showed the emails of the Ethereum crowd sale and stuff. All right, you know what? Let's just jump right into it. Again, I'm going to go to screen share. I'm going to pull up your Medium, uh, your medium profile. And th- those were your last two big articles having to do with Ethereum. So let's just um, go ahead and start with the first one. Uh, it's titled The Ethereum Blockchain Size. Uh, has uh, exceeded one terabyte. And yes, it's an issue. And you have like an awesome cover picture. I absolutely love it. Where is it? These are long articles, by the way, but it's it's at the bottom. There it is, Uh, Ethereum holding up the chart. And uh, this is the chart that you used. I went to it and the guy has stopped updating this
1: chart. Yeah, he came onto Slack one time because I asked on Slack if anybody knew who was running the site. And I don't know if he just happened to browse or if someone like contacted him, but he came on and he said that he just stopped doing it because he, no yeah, he just couldn't <laughs> keep up.
0: Right. He, uh, it's, it's not that he couldn't keep up with the work of updating the chart. He couldn't keep up with downloading the data in Ethereum, right? Yeah. Like it was a technological fail. It wasn't like, oh my God, I don't know. I'm bored.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it was his hard drive or I, I don't know what the scenario was, but something stopped him from being able to do it. Whereas that doesn't happen. Like if your Bitcoin node works now, it works tomorrow. You know, it's just.
0: All right. So let's start at the very beginning, right? Like what is a blockchain to you? And then we'll go from there talking about Moore's law and Nielsen's law and all this other stuff. Well, let's start with the easy stuff. What is a I blockchain mean, and what are its benefits and what are its. Well, you know, that's, its that,
1: that's, a, that's a touchy subject for some people.
0: I, uh, some people try and
1: say that you could have centralized blockchains, but. It's, it's just a segment of data that has a hash, and then that hash is linked to the next segment of data. And what that provides, like the utility that that provides, some people argue has a much broader scope than how we apply it in Bitcoin. And a lot of people argue that it only works to solve a simple thing, like one, one, one problem that we have, which is uh, immutability.
0: And that's your view
1: on it as well. I I see it as I mean the, the goal is to come to decentralized consensus right. over over a ledger. Like it's it I, I don't wanna I don't wanna um like reiterate eight years of what we've been of what we've been saying. So but yeah, a blockchain the per the purpose of it is to have an immutable history of data
0: right and uh obviously what the DAO hack ethereum has proven that they don't care for uh immutability of data but that's probably for another time uh but you agree with that statement though yeah perfect um okay so i still have screen share on uh uh we're gonna let's go to your article uh one at a time let's talk about some definitions right so that people understand Uh, when we're throwing terms out. Um, So uh, can you uh, briefly explain what Moore's Law is? Because uh, people uh, always use it all the time, but just a layman's uh, version of it for the non-developer. Like, what's Moore's Law? Um, Specifically, Moore's Law is
1: all the zeros and ones that are computed on your computer are done on... Uh, an integrated circuit, so it's and those circuits grow in um, density over time uh, the our the the observation i think was s- uh, around sixty percent annually. I think I even wrote that in the article but um yeah, it's just an observation of where of of like the the rate of growth for computers for a computer's ability to process information, but it's not applicable from every angle. There's other, there's other ways information is processed that Moore's law just doesn't apply.
0: Right, and that's, so, uh, that's where the blockchain stuff comes in because it's not just the processing of information, it's the moving of that information around the world, right? And this is yeah. where bandwidth comes into play and um, in your explanation of bandwidth, uh, you say that bandwidth grows slower than uh, than the, the circuit's ability to process the information. And yeah. uh, that goes into Nielsen's Law. So maybe you can define that for us real quick. Uh, Nielsen's Law is the
1: same, it's the same concept. It's an observation of the, the rate of growth within a certain system. So Moore's Law observes the density of integrated circuits, Nielsen's law observes the average, um, consumer bandwidth speeds, but it, even that misses the point because the average consumer bandwidth speeds doesn't apply to other countries. It doesn't apply to third world countries. Like there, there's a lot of places, in the globe that just don't have the accessibility that the first world countries have. And the first world countries have such a huge effect on that average number that referencing it just misses the point because we need this system to be distributed throughout the entire planet, not just throughout America, not just throughout Europe.
0: Right. So, so the points that you make are, uh, I mean, even Moore's law has already, as far as I know, is not, uh, is not up to speed as initially considered. It has already breaking down uh, and uh, the circuits are not uh, processing the information as fast as expected. <laughs> now bandwidth is even slower and blockchains have another component and that's uh, network latency, which is yeah. uh, scales even slower than the bandwidth. And uh, my understanding of network latency is basically, uh, the ability to just process the block, and the bigger the block is, uh, the longer it will take to process, even with good bandwidth.
1: Yeah, because no matter how good your bandwidth is, there's there's hops. So the data go, the block goes from one node out to its peers, and then each of those peers have to take its time to process that, and then it hops, and then that, and then those powers of nodes. So each of those eight peers, their eight peers, has to now process that information as well. And it just keeps on going. So that like, latency is that delay between um, actually going across the network.
0: Right, and this has been one of my main arguments in the, when I debated Roger Veer uh, against Bitcoin Unlimited, saying that uh, the, you can't go to bigger blocks. I mean, two megabytes might be okay. Uh, no, two megabytes is probably okay. Four megabytes might be okay. But after that, it scales very, very badly. And right, Bcash is already on 32 megabyte blocks, and I think they're planning to go higher. And I can't wait. Is that absolutely crazy?
1: I can't wait. I want to see it happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, We, in a way we all do. Okay, so um, let's throw a couple of more definitions out there for people, and then we're going to get into the problems of Ethereum scaling. Um, so... Uh, the Ethereum developers like to name their releases with some weird names. So uh, can you just explain to us the difference between Parity, Solidity, and Casper? Oh, um,
1: Parity, Parity is a wallet. Solidity is the, what, their coding language for the, the smart contracts. And what was the third one you said?
0: Casper. Casper Casper uh, that's their proof of works that's their new upgrade to proof of work proof of stake with uh, with sharding right yeah uh, because these terms are always being used and they're not really like they, they expect everyone to know this like not even ethereum people yeah
1: I mean if, if you ask me to explain to you the intricacies of Casper. I wouldn't be able to. Well, not the intricacies. I, just Yeah, like, no, but like what? even like, like me writing these articles, I can't do that. So I have no expectation that the layman is going to have any idea what Casper is besides its name.
0: Right, and so uh, as far as my understanding of what Casper is, Casper is the name of their new upgrade that's going to have sharding and proof of stake. Yeah. Or, that or keeps one changing. or the other. And, that, and it keeps changing because first, uh, they were going to do sharding first. Then they were gonna do proof of stake first, and now I think they decided to do it one at the same time. Well, my
1: understanding is the Casper is a contract that they're gonna that these staking nodes are gonna have to run, and like so it was calculated that in order to run the Casper contract, you would need to be staking about a thousand Ethereum to break even uh, when it comes to being one of those nodes at stakes and sharding effectively i my, my understanding because it's all very unclear sharding somehow distributes that amongst nodes so now sharding requires you to stake 32 ethereum which well, i still think it, i still think is absurd
0: um i i wasn't going to get into this this quickly but yeah we, like, we, we can I, I, I don't i don't understand why why there is a break even point in staking your coins, right? It implies that you you can be losing coins, right? Because if I stake a thousand ethereum, what do I need to break even on? Am I like am I losing these ethereum every every block if I don't find enough blocks? Let's say I stake ten ethereum, right? I know you need a minimum of thirty two ethereum to have a node at all, right? And um uh, assuming they go to proof of stake, which by the way, I don't think they're ever going to. That's a different, that's a completely separate discussion. I don't understand how proof of stake is possible. What are you going to tell your miners? Stop mining?
1: Yeah, well, that's why Barry Silbert has this uh, sneaky little plan of his with Ethereum Classic.
0: Right. Um, also, <laughs> like, uh, uh, I, I don't know if you know about their difficulty bomb, which I thought was supposed to happen a year ago. but Well, yeah, they keep on pushing back. Oh, it's so it's like the debt ceiling. They keep delaying it. Yeah, so it's not Okay, so they can just so Vitalik just tells them what the next date is. There's no like oh, That's that's that's
1: what it seems like
0: That's just <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, you know what let's uh, let's hold off it up for a second. Let's talk about um, their uh, crazy bandwidth so your article explained it and like a lot here's the thing right like i also like about six months ago like yourself i was googling you know uh setting up an ethereum not that i was going to but like if anyone is capable of setting up an ethereum node with full history and in all my google searches i was not able to find anyone that was able to do it six months ago so is it even harder now to run a full uh, like if somebody wanted to run a full ethereum node with full history is it possible for them to download the entire history of that data?
1: I I know that it's possible. Uh, Jameson Lop did it recently, but he had a two thousand dollar piece of machinery that he was doing it with, and and,
0: and he had a one and, and he had a one uh, gig uh, fiber connection or
1: something. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's an exception. So it's definitely possible, but. Once, once you do that, you're basically subsidizing the network for everybody else. So, if he kept running that node, I don't know if he is, but he's basically one of those centralized nodes, and it shouldn't. You shouldn't have to spend that much money to take part in the network effectively.
0: And Ethereum doesn't separate like uh, SPV and light client nodes versus nodes that actually process the transactions. So nobody knows how many real nodes there actually are, right?
1: Yeah, it, the, the thing is, I don't know how you would go about tracking what nodes are what without some sort of complex uh, way to request random nodes for different types of old data and recent data. Like, I, So how you would do it, it, see, with Bitcoin, you just assume, because there is only one, every node validated the entire chain. So, like, whatever the number is, there's no, like, splitting that number up between different kinds. With Ethereum, since there's so many different options, and they all identify as a node, you have this large number with a big cloud over it, you know. Right.
0: So, um, so let's. Um, I guess we, we can take this conversation into all kinds of directions, and uh, let's just summarize your articles. How about that? Um, so, um, you also mentioned how. Uh, it's basically, it's all about the exponential functions where, uh, Bitcoin has linear growth. And even if, uh, I mean, we were never going to go to two megabytes because hard forks are just impossible because you can't convince everyone to upgrade. Right. But well, even if that's possible to an extent, because if the entire network's
1: life depends on the hard fork, then it's going to happen.
0: True. True. It's like, I always say, like, if it's some kind of a bug, then yes, but if it's an optional hard fork, it's not going to happen. Yeah,
1: I don't see at this point, especially. I don't see an optional hard fork happening at any point.
0: Right. Uh, so even had Satoshi decided on two megabyte blocks or five megabyte blocks back in twenty eleven, we would have been just fine. We would have still had linear growth. Yeah,
1: because but, because it really doesn't matter. It, it, like that, as long as it's not r- ridiculously high. Right. I mean, I would say 32 pushes it pretty well. Um, I would say that at some point in the future, eight megabytes could be sufficient, but it would also not be much of a difference compared to where we are in respect to actual scaling. You need you need orders of magnitude in scaling. You don't just need doubling. So,
0: uh, so right now, Bcash is continuously trying to double, but their ultimate goal is to be just like Ethereum, to let the miners decide how big the blocks are. And that's what Ethereum does now, correct? With their gas. Yeah, it's, it's a little,
1: I don't know if it's 1.2 or 1.5. But basically you take a moving average of the past X amount of uh, blocks and the gas limit on those blocks. And then the current block could be, I think it's 1.2. Times that size, but, but that's still keeps, exponential growth. Yeah, if you keep like if, if you make that block one point two, and then you make the next block one point two of the next moving average, and you keep doing that, that grows exponentially as well. And even if it's like, even if you're not doing that consistently, it's still growing at some exponential curve because it's, it it goes up over time. Uh, I mean, you you could see it. And the the argument the argument against that is always, well, we've decreased the gas limit some. For, for, This whole statement is absurd we've we have like we have decreased the gas limit in the past so you already have a a, 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 you're acknowledging the centralization just by saying that and then what you're pointing to only happened once
0: right but once is enough to prove you're centralized and not immutable
1: yeah no it's definitely enough to prove that you're centralized but even like it like the claim is that it's not going to keep increasing because we've decreased once and that just doesn't make any sense because when you look at it there was
0: no it's just it's kind of like saying hey bitcoin hash rate is not going to increase because it decreased at one time yeah (laughs) all right (laughs) pretty much um okay so um uh, the next thing that oh man i had another thought in my head um so Okay, oh, the gas. I'm sorry, so, so here's a question. I hope you know. Um, well, I've never used Ethereum, so I have no idea, right? So one ethereum token right now is about six hundred bucks or four hundred bucks, whatever the hell it is, right? Uh, yeah. but is how is gas calculated right? Like a contract costs x number of gas, but how much ethereum is gas, right? Like I know a one Bitcoin transaction costs me x amount of Satoshi's per byte of size. Uh, do you know how gas is calculated for paying a smart contract? Um, because I don't know, like if I have to pay two gas to pay for a smart contract, I'm not sure what that means in dollar terms or how that two gas was calculated.
1: Yeah. Off the top of my head, I don't know. I don't know the exact details. And every time I read it, I I like grasp it and then I forget it because it's just, it's, it's insignificant to me. It doesn't matter because I don't need to, I don't need to understand exactly how it works because I don't use Ethereum.
2: I don't care for it.
0: Right. Okay. Makes sense. But, but it's, but it's a some small amount, right? Like if I'm holding one Ethereum token, I can run a bunch of smart contracts, right?
1: Yes. And no, I guess, I guess it depends on how full the blocks are because, the each block has a, has the gas limit, which is determined, you know, by the miners, but, um, that let's say you have a contract and that contract requires 50 gas and the gas limit in one block is a hundred gas. You can only run two of those contracts. So if there's three, there's going to be a market now for getting in and then you have to pay a fee to be prioritized. So it's the same concept as Bitcoin when it comes to fees and getting into a block, but there's just no limit. The miners can allow more if they want to. And the only reason they're not doing it right now is for altruistic purposes because of the uncle rate is is too high for them.
0: Right, so uh, again, just for definition purposes, uncle rate is basically when let's say two miners, two separate miners find a block almost at the same time And they both try to propagate that block. So some of it could be luck, whichever block moves through the system faster. So like in, in Bitcoin, right, you're connected to about eight peers. So if you can get lucky that the eight peers you're connected to slightly faster got that block by milliseconds. And then they slightly faster propagated that block through their network. And the next block got built on top of that block so if uh that could be more luck than you finding a better block right um
1: well i think it's better to explain how it works in bitcoin first in bitcoin we have orphans so uh if there's two chains being built at the same time and then one becomes the longer one the block that was built on the chain that doesn't get extended that block is an orphan the right. same thing happens. the same thing happens in ethereum but Ethereum also has a function where you could take those orphans and then make it an uncle. And you can include that into the blockchain with your next block.
0: But doesn't that, Oh, so that means that the same contract can process an extra time for no reason at all. What do you mean? Well, well, um, if that con- oh do, do they did do, in that uncle block do they look for contracts that weren't already processed in the, in the main chain
1: yeah that like that that's i off the top of my head i I don't know exactly how it works but if there's duplicate transactions, I'm imagining it, it just overlooks the duplicate tran- transactions. Just looks for the ones that aren't in the block that's being paired with.
0: Oh, I gotcha. But, but 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 there is an assumption that uh, those are valid contracts.
1: Uh, yeah, but no, you you still have to validate them. It, it's not, they're not like bypassing anything.
0: Okay, I see. I see.
1: The only the only thing is like not every orphan becomes an uncle. So it's it's just a, it's just a second aspect of the orphan rate. In Bitcoin, we don't really have that many orphans because block times are 10 minutes apart.
0: Right. I gotcha. So, um, so where do you think this goes? So, um, so you're expecting the, the number of transactions on Ethereum to just keep growing exponentially. And this leads to less and less validating nodes leading to more centralization, which is the concept you define as scaling in versus scaling out. So maybe you can define those for us.
1: Um, yeah, so... <sighs> I just wanna review how I, how I put it, just because once I put this out, I have not read it since, and I have a tendency to forget everything that I write.
0: Yeah, no, those were great articles. I mean, I, I read both of them and I read slow, so it took me a while, but uh, there's this great information there, which is why I wanted to have you on
1: um yeah so this comes back to the definition of what scaling is um because people like to throw around the word scaling and nobody knows like not everybody's on the same page so when someone says well this doesn't scale the listener or like the person who isn't as technically inclined is thinking of what scaling means in their eyes and like you need you need to be on the same page Okay, so yeah, we, we need to be on the same definition of scaling before we can really right. use, use it as like a, a, a cornerstone of, of, a, of a subject that we talk about. Um, to me, scaling is increasing the number of fully validating nodes. It's not scaling the amount of transaction throughput on the base layer. I'm not, I'm not interested in scaling. Like I, I don't want to say that I'm not interested in that type of scaling. I'm not interested in it if it sacrifices my ability to run a full node, or if it sacrifices anybody else's ability to run a full node. I'm interested in more people being able to do this over time. I think that um, being able to directly be part of the network, for whatever reason, like it doesn't matter, so there's a lot of people who who like to question and say, "Well, what are the incentives for running a node and then and then other blockchain networks come up with master nodes to provide an incentive. I don't think there needs to be an incentive. I think you need to have whatever incentive you want and have access so like as long as the access is there, it doesn't matter why you want to run one, you're able to to me that's important so
0: Got it, and uh, and Bitcoin is trying to do just that, correct? I wouldn't even say it's trying to do
1: that, just that. I'm. I, I would say that it is doing that. I, I would say it's successfully doing that by denying motions like Bcash to uh, prevail or take take place on the Bitcoin network.
0: Right, and your argument is, and you even had a few back and forths with Vitalik on this, is that. Ethereum's uh, all of Ethereum's uh, scaling solutions would reduce the number of full, full validating nodes. Yeah, and his his response,
1: I, I don't want to say it's ingenuous, but he he, he tries to make the argument. He tries to make the argument at one point that all the nodes on the P2P layer are effectively the same. So you could run a you could run a node and not validate every shard, and then choose to if you want to. But it, that's not the same as everyone validating it all by default. It's and, and he says choose to, but you can only choose to if you have the ability to. And people's ability to do is also gonna be limited when it all gets rolled out, if it even becomes something that they manage to get working for who knows how long.
0: So, what what would you do? You want to take a guess? I mean, we know Bitcoin has one hundred about one hundred fifteen thousand uh, full validating nodes. Uh, you're running one. I'm running one. Uh, a bunch of people are running them. And uh, what's your best guess? What do you think Ethereum has?
1: Well, the numbers the numbers fluctuate a bit. When um, there's only one site that tracks the total count that I'm aware of. There's no site that tries to differentiate them. Uh, and when I say the total count, I mean they're including, they're including FastSync nodes. So that would be like including all the Electrum and Armory nodes in Bitcoin, which we don't do. Um, so the numbers hover. I, I, my guess is it might be around 15,000 right now. I've seen it at 20. When you look at the archive, websites for that website that tracks it you can see that number going up a little bit i think at one point it might have been at 40 but it's definitely been decreasing from there and so i don't know I, i i would say i would say maybe around tens of thousands but that's the total count again so you have like how many of them are fast versus not I, I it, that's, that's anybody's guess. And the problem, it shouldn't be anybody's guess, you know?
0: Gotcha. So, um, so when do you think like this ends? Uh, okay. So you know, before we go there, um, I don't do think, I don't think it's going to end for a
1: while. I, I think it's going to keep going because you have the, the problem with the, this is, this is another concept I, I, I wish people would, would grasp is. Bitcoin's network functions with just one node. It doesn't need to have hundreds of thousands of nodes.
0: Well, I think it it would need, like, I'm hoping that it would need at least two, not one. Well, the thing
1: is you could append the blockchain on your own. You could run one node, you oh, don't yeah, have sure. to do yeah, yeah. anything. You could do that yourself. You could, But the thing is you could have two, you could have three. Even Craig Wright tries to make the argument that Bitcoin would work with three, you know? It's a valid statement, but it completely misses the point. Like, because it's your, you don't want to have to be dependent on those limited amount of people. Right. Running those nodes or those limited amount of people who are, have the ability to run those nodes. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want that dependence. You want to be able to access the network and be part of the network yourself. Um, so when, uh, what what exactly was the question you said with Ethereum?
0: Uh, well, when do you think uh, this unravels? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, circling back
1: to that, the the issue is it doesn't. It's not going to be some sort of apparent unravel, in, in my opinion, because the 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 amount of nodes that exist that are syncing the network could be reduced by one, and that set of nodes that are still syncing the network is still syncing. Uh, you know, you could keep on you could keep on reducing that number and it works between the nodes that are connected. The issue is nobody else at, at one point will be able to run these nodes. When, if they do ever move over to sharding and it requires 32 Ethereum to stake, 32 Ethereum right now is, is how much? I think it's like...
0: Yeah, I think it's about, let's say $500 price of Ethereum. So about 15 grand.
1: Yeah, so if you have 15 grand just to stake in Ethereum, you might have enough to fund some sort of server or host it in the data center. And it's not gonna be an issue. So like, I think I think Ethereum might sustain itself for some time on that premise until it gets to a point where there's a limited amount of people running Ethereum and then the regulators can just come down on them because it's easy to pinpoint them.
0: Well, I, I would think that it's not even gonna get down to the regulators, I think that enough people will realize this is ridiculous and leave the network.
1: That that might happen as well because another thing is you have these you have these light nodes that are completely dependent on these fully validating nodes um, because the light nodes are the, the issue. It, it's funny the issue is uh, a lot of these nodes they can't they can't sync. So the suggestion is run it in fast, and wow. then they run it in fast and they can't get any peers because the amount of peers that are syncing are so limited and they can't seed out to all the white nodes. So it's like this double, it's this
0: double complication that they're having. Right, this sounds like the problem I used to have with BitTorrent when I want to download, you know, some very obscure movie or like a very old song and there's only like four people seeding it and there's like nine, 20 people trying to leech it.
1: Yeah, it, it gets really slow and It sucks. Well, I mean, even even just like Torrents, over time the seeders drop off.
0: Right. Uh, less and less people eventually start seeding because they're not like benefiting from it. And from reading your second article, it sounds like Vitalik is saying you will agreeing you will need like a thousand Ethereum in order to actually profit from staking the Ethereum. And wouldn't just a couple of big boys be the only ones that are running
1: these things. Yeah. And then it goes back to the whole problem with staking in general, because if you have that much to stake and then you're profiting, all you have to do is take those profits and then put them back into the system. And now you're running two nodes at stake. And then like, as you, like you, you slowly grow in the amount of nodes that you're running and then you become the network and then you have, say over what gets run and people like to point to mining and saying it's the same thing. It's oh, not God. It's not at all. The network of nodes determines what the consensus is and miners have to make valid blocks. It's, it's completely different. And they, they love to convolute that in defense and it just, it, it, it doesn't work.
0: Um, okay. So do you believe that they will be able to go to proof of work? I mentioned it earlier. I don't think it's possible. I do don't think it's possible for them to go to proof of work. I don't think the miners are going to let them. You mean proof of stake? I mean proof of stake, right. Sorry.
1: Um, well, what does it really mean to say the miners aren't going to let them? You mean I think Ethereum is going to fork. Thinking.
0: I think there'll be an ETH and an ETW. ETW stands for Ethereum work. This way they can keep <laughs> all of the same smart contracts on the same platform and they will just eliminate the difficulty bomb altogether.
1: I I don't know, I don't know. I mean, that that depends. I don't know how long you, you'll have a system. I mean, people were speculating over how long Bcash would exist when, with uh, having two networks using the same hashing algorithm. Uh, I don't know how long that fork would exist with ethereum classic existing at the same time
0: well it's three It no no, no no but the 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 new ethereum work chain will have all of the icos on it ethereum classic has nothing on top of it right so there's no yeah, but, there's no transactions happening on ethereum classic because no one has built any icos on it. right so no, nobody nobody needs that chain
1: yeah, but uh-huh. the issue is now now you have now you have two pairs of ICO tokens for everything. I mean, who do you, who, who do you think Vinny Lingham is gonna side with?
0: I don't know. That's a, that that's gonna be I and I don't think Vinny knows, right? Like for example, if Vitalik goes to uh stays with uh he's gonna stay with proof of stake and sharding, but two <laughs> ideas that are both unproven in the technological realm, or is he gonna stick to the Ethereum work chain that has been working and made him a multi multi-millionaire up to this point, um, it's a big decision for every ICO. Where do you go? And I don't think it's an obvious decision because, you know, remember when, uh, if Jeff Garzik would have a, would have done his uh, a 2X, there would be no first block because there was a bug, right? So um, you have to choose where are you going to be? And you don't know if the proof of stake with sharding is going to go completely belly up within the first week because it's so speculative. Now, if the entire industry, like you're not going to be able to move your ICO token to Ethereum Classic, I think that's another, that that would be too much of a, no reason for that, right? But what about all
1: these securities, right? What about all these tokens? Like, like how, who, who gets to decide that the valid token is on this chain or that chain? Um, oh, what the, the, expectations the, do the investors have to begin with? No,
0: it's irrelevant. There are uh, the, there are no investors, right? Because uh, these ICOs are companies that uh, are giving a security to their, to their investors, but they don't call them investors and they don't call them securities. Right? So their investors have no rights. Uh, That was the EOS, right? Like EOS said, you have no rights. This is not a security, you have no rights. So it's up to one guy. It's up to, again, up to Vinnie Lingham, up to Reggie Middleton, up to uh, the CEO of the centralized company that issued the ICO token on where that ICO is gonna be run when, uh, and I'm saying when, because I've been talking about this for years, when Ethereum splits again between proof of stake and proof of work.
1: <laughs> I, I think that they're all going to come together in some centralized manner and just decide to go with Vitalik. I, that's, that's my opinion. I mean, we can agree to disagree. I mean, it's all speculation. You know? Yeah,
0: no, that would be interesting. That's what I'm waiting for, right? Like, uh, I'll, Either I'll way, wait- it's going to reveal some things. You know? Yeah, I'm waiting for that split. I'm waiting for uh, when Vitalik flips the switch, to proof of stake, uh, how many of the ICOs are going to go with them? And I wouldn't be surprised if the majority don't go.
1: I I think I I would be surprised if the majority stayed behind, to be honest. I think a lot of the miners might be planning to move to Ethereum Classic, and I think they might be loading up on it just so it can pump. Uh, That's just my speculation, but it's, it's all
0: speculation. I don't know. You could be right. We,
1: I mean, that, in, in you know way, what? That's a that kind of good situation. I think that's the point.
0: You know? No, you know what? You made a valid point here, right? Um, but if all the miners do move to Ethereum Classic, that doesn't necessarily mean that the coin's gonna pump.
1: Well, they might be planning a pump.
0: Yeah, that could be true. Um, yeah, that would well, be. I don't like
1: to speculate. I don't like to speculate on price. To be honest, I just, I, I just DCA Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, uh, that 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 would be interesting. All right, so let's let's talk about sharding. Let me let me tell you my uh, uh, so I uh, so I was at the very first scaling Bitcoin conference in Montreal. Uh, I believe that was in 2016. I want to say early 2016, maybe. And uh, Vlad Zamfir gave the presentation on sharding, and I believe that was like the first public introduction to sharding. And I was hanging out with a bunch of those guys later that night, and I was listening to Vlad say how he would have he would love to bring sharding to Bitcoin because it's such an amazing scaling solution so can you just explain what sharding is and what a terrible scaling solution it actually is on later um, on yeah
1: that's that's interesting because I don't know why he would uh, he my interactions with him and the, the way I see him engage uh, when he's doing uh, those those lectures or whatever you want to call them, uh, or when he's interacting with people on Twitter, he I, I have no I have no issue with him as a person. So I just want to throw that out there.
0: I uh, like Vlad. I've hung um, out with him on several. Occasions.
1: But I know that I know that he's kind of against proof of work as a concept, or. That, that's my interpretation from what I've seen him write. So I don't know why. Maybe maybe his his opinions have changed since that statement. But I don't think he would want to bring sharding to Bitcoin now because just just because he's he's against proof of work, unless he. I, I don't know. Um, so I guess to explain sharding, <laughs> the sharding keeps changing. Uh, they keep on. There's different people have different opinions on what it means, but fundamentally um, when they talk about sharding and when I mention it, it's each shard is its own blockchain. So you're, what you're doing is you're making a bunch of blockchains and then you're tying them together on a network above each of those blockchain networks. So uh, at, at its fundamental Fundamentally shorting is combining many blockchains together. That's the simplest way to put it.
0: Okay. And what does this do if you want to use it on layer one, what happens? Um, and you have some diagrams that yeah, talked about in your article. So, this, like this I said, is why I
1: like, this is why I like writing because it really uh, gives me a lot of time.
0: Yeah, it's so, way down in. It's
1: all together. Jesus.
0: I, I read it. It took me a little while. Uh, so, here's your example of uh, charting and over time. It's this. Uh, no, no, no. Keep going down. Oh, I didn't get to it yet. This. Sorry. You're right. No. Uh, uh,
1: well, no, no. That's just an extreme. Keep going down. Jesus. <laughs> okay so that that one that one helps a little bit so the the purple blockchain at the top is one shard and the nodes that create the blocks for that shard those are all centralized and they're staking 32 ethereum each the the this is this is just a silly diagram that kind of helps
0: people visualize trying to zoom scale out here there we go This begins
1: to make more sense when you go down to the next one.
0: Okay. So you want to explain this one more time real quick?
1: Uh, Okay. So the purple blockchain at the top, that's one shard and the nodes that are surrounding that purple block in the center of that circle. Those are the nodes that are staking 32 Ethereum. Uh, Some of them stick to one shard and some of them delegate the other nodes to different shards. But ultimately, those are the only only nodes that have any effect on what goes on in each shard. They're the ones that are validating.
0: And what does go on in each shard? Um, it, whatever would go on within a blockchain. So, um,
1: how would you explain this? There's a lot of there's a lot of different ways you could
0: you could start, but um. So, uh, are you saying that instead of okay. let's say, so
1: I, I want because I want to explain headers and the difference between validating everything in a block and just validating the headers because that, that's the most important aspect here. Because in in Bitcoin, every node that every node is a fully validating node, so it validates every transaction, it validates the entire block. But each block has a header which you could vali- You could just validate the headers, but it doesn't prove that everything in those blocks were valid. And the issue with this system is each of these shards work together on a network above these individual blockchains, and that network above only looks at the headers. It doesn't look at any of the transactions.
0: So, uh, yes, that green the picture, right? So, the the green is the actual Ethereum blockchain.
1: Yes, it's going well. The the green is what's going to be the new Ethereum blockchain, right?
0: In the in their proof of work with sharding, proof of stake with sharding. Yeah. Oh, I should just do this, and um, yeah.
1: This is this is just my rendition of this. So I I don't want anybody to look at this and think that this is like some sort of completely accurate right uh, model of what the network looks like. It's not. It's a very simplified version to explain the points that I'm trying to explain, not to cover exactly how it works. So um, yeah, that green blockchain is the, uh, the main chain or the beacon chain as Vitalik has referred to it in, at some points. And all that chain does is it takes the headers of each of the shards and syncs those into a block. It creates a block of headers.
0: So you're basically breaking up your mining, though in a proof-of-stake model, there's no actual mining. You're breaking up validation into smaller pieces and then combining them by looking at the headers.
1: Yes. The issue is, though, validating each of those small pieces only happens by the subset of nodes on that specific shard. And you need to trust those nodes.
0: And how are you guaranteed that your transaction is going to be picked up by one of the shards?
1: Well, that's another, that's another question in and of itself because cross shard transacting is complicated and I don't think it's fully fleshed out just yet. Um, And like specific contracts are going to be running on a specific shard. They're not going to be running on cross shard. I mean, you might be able to get something working in that fashion, but generally if you're some sort of DApp developer, developer, you're going to throw it on a specific
0: shard. So let's say, let's say crypto kitties, right? So crypto kitties would always have to run, let's say on this circle.
1: Yes. And the problem is that doesn't even resolve the, uh, the backlog issue that crypto's that CryptoKitties is already creating, because I don't know of any way to prevent the transaction backlog on a single shard. You're, you're still going to run into that issue from from my understanding. But even then, the like all of this, all of this is like looking past the fundamental problem that I have with sharding. Because if you want to run a node from home, you're trusting these other nodes to say that these are all the valid transactions, that none of these transactions are invalid. And all you can do is check to see if something's invalid, but you have no way to stop it. Because and I, I went into this with the with the with the section on Bitcoin's network because Propagate the way Bitcoin's designed. uh, When when your node propagates, you have the power to refuse to propagate. And since all nodes validate, you know, together you 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 announce your block to the network, and then that passes it off to the next set of nodes, and then they pass it off, and within uh, however many hops the entire network has it. All of those nodes are running the same consensus rules and they have the power to reject propagation. And that includes your node. You know, this block, your node could be the second hop. The next block, your node could be the fifth hop. It doesn't really matter. The point is, together, you have the power to reject. In Ethereum, all of these light nodes, they don't have that power to reject. They have no say because they're not validating. They're they're just trusting and checking. They're not propagating to the other nodes that validate.
0: So eventually you see Ethereum becoming, let's say, maybe 10 nodes or not even.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say 10 nodes. I would, I would definitely say that bef- bef- when Ethereum crashes, it's probably going to be more than 10 nodes. But 10 nodes isn't, uh, I mean, like 100 nodes doesn't mean 100 people. You could have 100 nodes, you could have 50 people. And I think that's what's more important. It's location distributed, uh, how it's distributed among people countries uh across the geographically stuff like that matters
0: and you okay, go ahead sorry
1: well no I'm, I'm just when when you when you really when it really comes down to it that stuff's the most important let's say you live in some let's say you live in taiwan right and you're the only ethereum node runner there the government's going to tell you what to do right they're going to have the ultimate say if they want to. And that's a problem because there's one and you can pinpoint who that one is because it's clear that there's a lot of activity coming out of that location. And and like Bitcoin works because of the amount of like it, it just, it keeps increasing the targets to the point where you can't even win with a carpet bomb. Like, you, you, like there's just too many of them to destroy the network. That's why it works. It's the only way it works long term. So that comes back to, you know, Ethereum lasting for however long it might last. It, it, it'll be subsidized. It'll definitely be subsidized by these limited amount of nodes. But at some point, something's going to stop it, whether it's regulations or just people waking up because it doesn't work.
0: All right. Um, so I'm good. I mean, I I mostly uh, want people to really read these articles. Uh, and on a final note: it looks like everything that Bcash is doing is headed in a similar direction as Ethereum, and you state that as well, right?
1: Yeah, I I kind of wanted to not get too much into Bcash because I already covered it. But uh, I mean, uh, w- within that article, mm-hmm. but. it it does seem like there's a lot of overlap between the people who are interested in both blockchains and you see a lot of them being okay with ethereum existing the 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 um,
0: oh yeah yeah they 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 think that uh, the world is big enough for infinite number of blockchains
1: yeah i it's 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 not now i mean there, there's there's some arguments for
0: but not bitcoin infinite number except bitcoin
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um, I mean, there, there's 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 definitely some arguments that are worth looking into where there might be some sort of extremely extremely minor chain that coexists with Bitcoin, but I'm not sure how much value it would actually have, and it would also have to be completely decentralized, which none of these are. Um, but that's that's a different that's a different subject. I don't think it's I. I, I so, I'm generally a maximalist. I don't see there being any room for two sound monies. So
0: well, right, but but Ethereum never claimed to be money, right? Which is kind of silly because everyone is once because half the people are treating it like money and like an investment, but they've always said, "Hey, we're not money. We're just gas." Yeah, I, I just so so. What, okay,
1: okay so, so I don't. I I I. I it doesn't make any sense to me and
0: it, it doesn't no it, it doesn't make any sense which is why arguing why ethereum is an outright you know disaster is very difficult and part four of this episode is going to try and talk about the economic incentives of the stupidity of the application token uh but uh one final question and you may choose not to answer so what do you think all of these like not the i we, we know the motivation of the ico scammers right we know what their motive. I mean, like, they'll build that shit on anything, right? Well, yeah, they just want but, Right. But, like, why do you think so many people, like, that aren't, you know, running their ICO scam, um, why do you think so many people still believe in Ethereum? Like, like even I the think- developers, like, like what, what do you think is going through their brain that they don't understand the basic stuff that non-developers like me see a mile away?
1: I think... That it's because the concept that we're trying to address is so obscure to most people in general, that the, the scene attracts these people without, before they're able to grasp the concept. So,
0: so, 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 so it's a nice way of saying, uh, uh, not very like uh, not very bright developers are all over Ethereum.
1: I, I mean I I think I, I think there's a lot of genuine developers on ethereum but like it's it's very it's we we could go into hypotheticals about like how someone would wind up developing on ethereum and not understand the concept of sound money and I, I don't think that that makes them unintelligent I just think it puts them in a certain situation because there's 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 been um, accounts of people going to blockchain conferences and like working on blockchains without ever having heard of Bitcoin. I've heard that from some people where like they there are these accounts of people who they've been working on blockchain for a year and like only just came across Bitcoin. So like there's definitely circumstances where you can come across this concept and just not not have been introduced to like everything else surrounding it. So I, I I don't want to say that they're all like incompetent or, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that they're stupid. There's definitely a lot. I I, I do. I do.
0: I want to say that. I have said that.
1: Uh, (laughs) Okay. I, I, I think, I think there's some genuine, um, genuineness among some of the Ethereum developers, but I, you can also start breaking down the developers into different groups. You have protocol development, and then you have DAP development. Are they the same? You know, you have you have uh, TCP/IP stack developers that worked back when it was all coming out, and now you have website developers. Are they the same? They're definitely not the same. Oh, very different. So, like that's that's one of those things where it comes down to the definition. We can talk about developers, but then and I have to clarify which ones. But um. I lost the track that we were on.
0: Uh, that's okay. We we're talking about uh, the IQ levels of Ethereum <laughs> developers. Yeah. Uh, I,
1: I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm I not fond of making broad. broad um,
0: yeah, no, um, And that's fair. And that's fair. All right. Um, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, thanks so much uh, for coming on the channel. Uh, once again, Uh, This was uh, my little chat with Stop and Decrypt, who wrote two amazing articles in as layman's terms as you can get. uh, You don't need to be a developer to understand it. Uh, He explained in very layman's terms uh, why Ethereum blockchain is growing exponentially, uh, why it has a major problem scaling, and why efforts like going to proof of stake, uh, which sharding will potentially make Ethereum even more technologically uh, centralized uh, causing severe problems. And uh, unfortunately this uh, Ethereum nonsense can last longer than we expect. I didn't think it would still be around, but it's still with us. And uh, any final words stop uh, as I close out? Um,
1: no, uh, I'm bad with final words, but if you <laughs> have, uh, it was interesting. This is the first time I've been on video, second podcast. Uh, I apologize for anything that I may, they may have stumbled through.
0: Yeah, it's not easy, man. Yeah. It's not easy. Th- thanks for coming on. It actually took me uh, some time to convince him uh, to get on. But uh, uh, amazing articles. Uh, some people are definitely better at writing than doing video. I am the opposite. I used to write. Now I, I don't. Uh, now I just do video. And uh, besides Twitter and your uh, Medium channel, uh, which will be in the description of this video, um, anywhere else people can find you or just those two places?
1: Um, it's Stop and Decrypt on Twitter, Medium, and Reddit. All right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's it.
0: All right, excellent. Uh, so thank you for watching, guys. Uh, this has been uh, another episode of Crypto Scam, focusing on the technological side of Ethereum. Uh, I will have more guests talk about other problems of Ethereum. And of course, Crypto Scam will go on reviewing other projects and other scam coins. Uh, Thank you so much for watching and see you all on the next one. Welcome back to part two of this very special episode of Crypto Scam with another guest to continue our discussion of the scalability and the promises of Ethereum. Uh, With us for the rest of this episode is going to be the famous Jameson Lopp, And his uncanny beard, uh, who is now a systems engineer at Casa, a new startup in the space. Uh, Formerly, he was the systems engineer at uh, BitGo. And thank you very much for joining me on this episode, Jameson.
2: Pleasure to be here for the first time.
0: Yeah, you're right. This is the first time I'm interviewing you. And um, we haven't seen each other lately. I haven't attended too many uh, Bitcoin developer events. Uh, But your name did come up this past weekend as I was purchasing my uh, new toy in the world of hardware and you were instrumental to them in order to actually stress test uh, the crypto key stack. So you want to do a quick shout out to them and a word on what I'm holding?
2: Yeah, I uh, bought a bunch of the hardware metal uh, storage devices out there and put them through the ringer, everything from like 2000 degree heat for a prolonged period of time to uh, crushing with like 10 ton hydraulic press and the crypto key stack held up the best to all of those things and, and even more uh, environmental hazards like hydrochloric acid, rusting, all kinds of stuff. So if okay. you're going to go uh, with the metal, uh, that's probably one of the best ones to do.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Now, this is not a hardware wallet. This is simply a way you can preserve your private key in a non-destructible way, a lot better than writing it down on a piece of paper. Uh, So there you go. We got a little plug in there. So is that what you currently do, mostly physical stress testing, or you mostly focus on technical stress testing?
2: Uh, That was a kind of unique thing for me. I've never tried anything like that before, but I've read a number of, of reviews and a few stress tests of, of these metal devices, and I just felt like they didn't take it to the extreme that it really needed. So um, I, I think that I, you know, I arguably uh, put these into conditions that the normal user is not going to experience, but uh, you know, we, we like to think adversarially in this space. Cool.
0: So, real quick, tell us about Casa. Where um, are you? I'm assuming you are one of the co-founders of Casa, as well. Uh,
2: yeah, early, early employee. Uh, you could call me a partner, I suppose. Um,
0: and uh, to tell, yeah, tell us um, what, what what your company does, or the company that you are associated with does. Uh, what your exact role is, and what is your general role in the Bitcoin ecosystem?
2: So at Casa, I'm doing similar stuff to what I was doing at Bitco, which is really uh, helping build the infrastructure and think about all the back-end systems that we need. Um, And then just thinking about security from a number of different perspectives. How can we facilitate these uh, crypto finance transactions while minimizing the trust required? You know, obviously, users are going to be dealing with us and our, our software that we're providing, and there will be some trust, but we want to minimize that as much as possible while still helping the user be sovereign in what they're doing. And specifically, when we're, we're targeting like user sovereignty, we want to be a non-custodial solution. We want the user to finally realize the promise of being your own bank in Bitcoin. And we're doing that by offering very user-friendly mobile app but that is backed by the security that you get from hardware key management devices like Ledger, Trezor, KeepKey, key, what have you. So while you'll be using a mobile app to actually manage uh, your wallet, see your balance, uh, you know, facilitate creating the transactions, the actual private keys themselves are going to be stored on geographically separated hardware key management devices. So it's really like a vault product where... We're trying to make your wallet robust, not only against hackers, but against physical attackers and all types of other loss that can happen uh, even due to like user negligence. So that's kind of one of the things that we're going for is lowering the barrier to entry, lowering the learning curve that's required to be your own bank.
0: Gotcha, thanks a lot for that background. And is it fair to call you, I'd say a Bitcoin core contributor?
2: Uh, From a technical standpoint, I mean, I've got three or four, um, you know, pull requests that were just trivial changes, usually stuff that I ran into while I was working on my own fork of Bitcoin core, which is the Satoshi fork. So, um, you know, don't have any major functionality that I've contributed there, but uh, I am on the list of the like, you know, 570 uh, people who have uh, code that's in the core repository.
0: Right. And uh, from my point of view, it's hard for me to get, you know, I want core developers, you know, our our top 20 engineers. I'm not really here to interview them. I want them working. Like I need them to keep my Bitcoin safe and decentralized. And and I know you are very well respected in the space. And I recently heard you on the Noted podcast talking about your uh, adventure in setting up your Ethereum node. And mm-hmm. I wanted to uh, dive a little bit deeper into that specific conversation. So earlier in this episode, I talked with Stop and Decrypt, who is somewhat anonymous in the space, uh, and I not many people know much about him, other than he writes uh, pretty detailed research articles. And lately, he is well not lately, but over the summer, he wrote several criticizing the scalar, the technological scalability of ethereum now as i brought stop and decrypt for this interview i found out that he's not actually uh, a developer Uh, he's more of a researcher so i wanted to bring you on and just for a more developer perspective because my developer days are long behind me i did have a degree in financial engineering i used to look at code i used to write amazing vba code in the back of excel Uh, I'm telling you, my VBA skills were not ones to mess with, but that's as far as I really wanted to go. Started learning some Python and then realized, you know, coding is not what I really want to do. Um, So I'm actually going to pull up screen share and we'll jump right into uh, the full topic. So uh, the first article that he wrote, it was titled, the Ethereum blockchain size has exceeded one terabyte and yes, it's an issue. This was written back in May, uh, back at the end of May. We are now about to go into September. So it's been a good, what, four months? Uh, It's been a good four months since then. And it was a pretty lengthy and detailed article. I love the picture of uh, Vitalik holding up that sign uh, that everyone has been using. I think it's coming up there eventually. These are long articles, guys. I read all of them. Uh, and uh, it, it, it takes some time. So what, um, what do you think about that? Uh, and how did, like, like, from a general point of view, um, how is the Ethereum blockchain getting so many transactions, and where do you think it's going? And then we'll pick at the details of that.
2: Yeah. So um, the the one terabyte number is for a, what they call an archival node. Uh, within Ethereum, there's there's more classes of, of node types and, and security models than uh, you're going to find in Bitcoin. And uh, that was the type though that uh, I was running when we were operating infrastructure at BitGo, is this archival node. And basically that means that if you are uh, starting off your node, and this requires using non-default parameters, by the way, the default is using a, a much more lightweight and lower security model. Um, but if you do decide to do a you know, full validating archival node where you start off from the Genesis block and you, you download every transaction that's ever happened and actually perform the calculations that do the state changes to the uh, Ethereum state, then if you're lucky, you know, maybe a week or so later, if you're running decent hardware, you will catch up and you'll get to the current tip of the blockchain. Now you're only going to be able to do that if you're running pretty high-end solid state disks that have a lot of disk throughput simply because the, uh, the calculations that are required involve reading and writing a lot of data from the disk. And if you get to the very end, then you'll end up with you know, over a terabyte of data. And that's because it's storing all of the different states that have ever occurred in, in Ethereum. There are you know, other options for you to prune those away. And I think if you end up doing pruning, then you'll probably end up with somewhere around 50 gigabytes of disk usage, but you'll still have had to do all of the reads and writes, which is what makes that initial sync incredibly slow. And like you can't even do an initial sync uh, from the Genesis block on Ethereum if you're using uh, spinning disk hard drives, for example. Um, you also can't do it if you're using a virtual private server that, that has a pretty low uh, IOPS or you know, disk IO set to it. So the nodes that we were running at BitGo were fairly expensive to, to use because this disk IO on virtualized servers is incredibly expensive but I have done some tests on the opposite end where I bought one of those like brand spanking new M.2 NVMe drives. That's like a Ram drive. And I was able to do a full sync and validation of the Ethereum blockchain earlier in the spring, I think in a couple of hours. Um, And that was with like a $2,500 computer that I built myself. So uh, suffice to say that, There is a lot more uh, disk IO required to churn through the entire Ethereum blockchain in comparison to uh, Bitcoin. And the way that they get around this is that on pretty much all of the Ethereum clients that I'm aware of, they will default to doing something called either warp, warp syncing or fast syncing, where they're basically going out and they're getting a snapshot from Usually, like thirty thousand blocks or so ago, I forget how many weeks or months that is. And then they will just start syncing and validating from that point in time. So, uh, you know, you could call this the like uh, ask a friend model of you know, give me the state from a while ago, and then I will assume that the the proof of work that 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 chain is following is is been valid up to that point, and you know that there's no invalid states before that. And uh, we'll just go forward from there. And that's, you know, somewhat similar to like a Bitcoin SPV type of mode, though, where you do start doing more validation. Uh, you just, you don't do it from the very beginning. So it's, it's weird. It's kind of a hybrid uh, security model. And then, you know, what we're going to get into, I think, talking later is about the even crazier changes that are going to happen to Ethereum security model when we start talking about stuff like shard and proof of stake.
0: Yeah, we're, we're about to get into that. I'm just a little more curious on the costs, right? Yeah. So, um, and also you said you did it in the spring. Um, I think Ethereum has gotten a lot of transactions into their blockchain since the spring because now yeah. we're going into the fall. What would your expectation be on costs, time costs, machine costs, uh, you know, just general uh, let's say on January 1st. Let's say going into 2019. What would you say would be a reasonable price cost and time cost to download, you know, the full big boy Ethereum blockchain from Genesis Block?
2: Yeah, from from you know, I don't keep as as close a track as I used to since I'm I'm uh, not operating the these type of Ethereum nodes on a day-to-day basis anymore, but from what I have been seeing, it seems like the Ethereum blockchain has been basically maxed out for most of the year while uh, on Bitcoin, of course, as the price declined, uh, the activity dropped off a lot and and very few blocks have been full on Bitcoin. But... um, at the very least, if you're going to want to build your own machine that is, is running this, um, you're probably gonna want to spend close to $1,000 because you're, you're gonna want to get uh, you know, really high-end solid state drive and, and fairly high-end CPU to be able to churn through that. And this is of course assuming that you wanna do the non-default full validation of the entire history. Um, It gets a lot more expensive if you're doing this in an enterprise environment, uh, like running virtual private servers. Um, Those costs are going to easily run into, you know, hundreds of dollars per month if you want to have sufficient disk IO to keep up uh, with the the blockchain. And what we find is that... uh, the, the releases of these new Ethereum clients tend to come out with performance improvements. And that's mainly because I think there's a lot of pressure on the Ethereum developers because the enterprises are just running into issues where their nodes are uh, falling out of sync, uh, lagging behind, and it's, it's resulting in operational headaches for exchanges and uh, you know, DAP uh, makers and really anyone who needs to be providing services that are up to date with the current state of the Ethereum blockchain.
0: Gotcha. But all of those costs you have just described... um, Actually, let me drop screen share. So all of those costs that you just described, they're uh, hardware costs. What about bandwidth and internet speed costs? Like what minimum bandwidth do you need to download this thing, you know, in less than six months historically? And what bandwidth speed you need to be paying for in order to keep up with their 12-second blocks, I believe.
2: Yeah. Um, well, the bandwidth isn't as bad uh, because you know the block size on Ethereum I think equates to about 20 kilobytes. Now, of course, their block times are more like 15 seconds, but um, it's it's not so much the bandwidth of like downloading and uploading as it is. The much more intensive disk operations where you're having to read and write data from arbitrary points on the disk every time a transaction comes in, you know, that, that could be requiring you to read data from a really long time ago, and that's why using spinning disks is just a non starter because they take like 10 milliseconds to go even find a, a point on the hard drive. Whereas solid state is a lot faster in terms of the latency,
0: gotcha. So What does this, uh, like, how does this work for every single ICO that has launched on Ethereum? And how many of these ICO companies do you think are running their full Ethereum nodes, Mm -hmm. processing their own transactions, or are they relying on some centralized entity to do it for them?
2: I would suspect that very few of them are are running, you know, fully validating nodes. Um, it's, It's just, you know, it's, it's a lot more, it's costly in, in terms of money and time and, and operational expenses. But even beyond that, it's just, it's not the default. And really what you find in software in general is that defaults are very sticky. So even if they are running their own node, they're probably just uh, you know, downloading Parity or Geth or whatever and running it with the defaults. And so that's doing like fast and, and warp syncing and skipping over the vast majority of validation.
0: Okay, so before we move on to the next article specific to sharding and POS, like, let's just say on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate Bitcoin, Bitcoin's, uh, de- uh, Bitcoin, we say Bitcoin is decentralized. Um, how would you rate that on a scale of 1 to 10? And then the same question to Ethereum. Uh, how would you rate Ethereum's decentralization on a scale of 1 to 10?
2: It's I actually I hate trying to to simplify it in such terms, because when we talk about centralization and decentralization, there's so many different ways you can measure it so many different vectors now and when I do it, it's, you know, it's going to be mainly from technical standpoint of like, what is the, the network of nodes look like. And, you know, from that standpoint, I think that there are a lot more fully validating nodes on the Bitcoin network. So it's thus much more decentralized than on Ethereum, where uh, there, the Ethereum node count, if we're looking at like fully validating nodes, is much, much smaller. Um, and I think is going to continue to decrease simply because the, the cost of running them will continue to increase. Right.
0: And that is actually my biggest. Um, I, I try to look forward and that is my biggest thing. I never felt the need to run my own Bitcoin node until the whole user activated soft fork um, kind of blew up in our faces because no one expected the miners not to go along with something that everyone thought they should have been happy with. So uh, the user-activated soft fork experiment uh, created a lot more node holders and I think made the system a little more decentralized. And I think that going into the future, uh, Bitcoin is being built out, the technology of Bitcoin is being built out as a way to encourage more people to run their own validating nodes. And everything I've seen so far in Ethereum is discouraging your ability to create your own node, decentralize the system and process your own transactions. Uh, would you agree with that generalization?
2: Well, yes, because it's a lot more difficult. It's a lot more challenging to, to build a system that is you know, efficient at the base layer. Whereas there are a number of, of tendencies that push various people and developers and companies within these ecosystems to want to centralize different aspects of it. Because centralization is, is tantalizingly easy because you can get such, such greater performance gains by centralizing different aspects of the system.
0: Gotcha. All right. So let's jump over to how Ethereum plans to scale. And Ethereum has two things on their roadmap. And everyone is debating which one should happen first. And of course, they're going to meet in the middle and try to do both of them at the same time, which Mm -hmm. is probably going to create an even bigger disaster. So one of them is, of course, moving uh, to a proof of stake system. And the other one is moving over to sharding. So I don't know which one would you rather start with. If we start with sharding, please define uh, sharding for us
2: yeah um you know, from reading over stuff they they seem to want to tie them together uh, because I think it will be simpler for them to do that uh, you know kind of like a do one big transition all at once rather than try to figure out how to do multiple different transitions
0: all right, this is what the Bitcoin core developers attempted to do with segregated witness and ran into. A bit of a problem and if those pieces were gonna be done one at a time maybe one of them would have created the big problem so in hindsight it's hard to say if that was the right way to do it or not but now it's hindsight and I think the way it was done was absolutely it needed to be done
2: yeah yeah so um, sharding in in general technical terms is uh, a fairly old concept Um, I actually first experienced uh, sharding 10 years ago um, when I was working on a web application that was on the LAMP stack, so Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP, and uh, we had a MySQL database and the company grew to the point that it just wasn't possible for that single server uh, with that single MySQL database to continue to be able to process the load of our increasing number of customers. So what did we do? We sharded it. And and by sharding, basically that meant that we created a bunch of new machines that had their own MySQL databases. And then there were just little pointers in a master database. And and whenever a customer started doing stuff with our web app, we would say, okay, this user has been assigned to this shard. So just send them over and do all the regular database operations, but do it on this one machine rather than uh, on a single huge instance. And so it's a fairly straightforward way of doing uh, quote unquote horizontal scaling where you can just buy more machines, you throw more machines at the problem. Uh, That that ends up being a lot more cost efficient than vertical scaling, which means you still have like one machine or a few machines and you just buy uh, increasingly more powerful ones, but they become exponentially more expensive to do so. Now in a decentralized environment, uh, this, this still makes sense from a performance standpoint because you're basically spreading out the load more widely across a larger number of machines. But the trick, uh, the, the kind of downside is how do you do this without changing the security model of the system? Because we currently in Bitcoin have, uh, you know, a single blockchain and you if you're running a full node then you're downloading all the data validating it yourself and it gives you this amazing security model people often refer to as trustless where the only real security assumption is that you at one point in time have connected to one other honest node on the network you know even if you're connected to 100 nodes and 99 of them are lying to you then that one honest node will get the data to you that you will be able to authoritatively say yourself this is the correct data and everyone else is lying to me. But if you're on a network where you're only downloading 1% of the data, then the other 99% could potentially be lying to you by omission and you're just never receiving the data. So it becomes a lot trickier to retain a strong security model in a system where you're not looking at all the data yourself.
0: Oh, that's, um, so that's very informative, but that's the security and the omission of data perspective. So Stop and Decrypt specifically makes the point that sharding can actually centralize your system. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to deep dive into this article, but what are your general thoughts on uh, just centralization in general uh, because of sharding?
2: Yeah, um, and you know, I've, I've spent a number of hours reading through as much of the technical documentation around proof of stake and sharding uh, that are currently available in Ethereum. And I remember when you were first asking me about this about a month ago, I said, you know, I'm really not comfortable talking about it because I don't understand it very well. And since then, I have spent a fair amount of time, uh, probably at least six hours uh, so far, reading through the, the various blog posts and FAQs. Um, both on Eth research and Vitalik's blog and Twitter and whatnot.
0: Yeah, and, I'm I'm so, I'm sorry about that, James. No, no, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to kill some of your brain cells.
2: I really I really need them to continue programming Bitcoin. No, no, this is good. I mean, you know, learning is always good. Um, and but but what I would say is that at least you know six or so hours into it so far, um, I'm not sure that anyone really understands uh, the proof of stake and sharding in Ethereum, because I don't think it's done. And the reason why I say that is like, you actually go to the, um, the FAQ for sharding on Eth uh, Research website, and there's a note near the bottom that says, you know this is only about 70% done, and then it lists a lot of things that have not yet been uh, fully finalized. And, and that includes uh, a fair amount of the game theory around like how they're gonna penalize bad actors or even find bad actors in the system. And so um, suffice to say that within Ethereum moving to this proof of stake model, they're implementing a ton of new game theory. Um, that's not necessarily bad. I mean, you could make an argument that Lightning Network is is implementing a ton of new game theory, but um, they're also introducing uh, just an enormous level of complexity at the base layer. And there are things, and there's a lot of un- unanswered questions of, you know, how are you going to have good guarantees? Mainly, or what I'm worried about is the cross-shard communication of like, how do you guarantee, or at least have some sort of probabilistic guarantee that uh, transactions and data that occur on one shard correctly make it over to another shard. And they're trying to do that by uh, using a lot of like pseudo random sampling from the validator set to say, okay, you know, each shard has 150 validators and they're randomly assigned. So it's hard to gain the system. Um, But there's, there's still, I think, deeper level issues in, in, how they're gonna do the like the actual load balancing of the data across the shards. And so there's a number of things that could go wrong, like if, if the activity on one shard got really out of whack, really high, and another shard was really low, you can start running into throughput issues. And the reason why this is the case is that you should basically think of each of these shards as being the same as what the current Ethereum blockchain is like. So we can expect that they will be able to do at a best case, maybe 15 transactions per second. So what happens when one shard starts trying to do 100 transactions per second, and, and then some other neighbors that are only doing one or two transactions per second are trying to communicate with it. So it's just a, an issue of you know increasing levels of complexity by orders of magnitude, and of course, the fact that this is something that has been researched for, I think, Four or so years now, and um, if you like, if you look at Vitalik's recent tweet storm that was seventy something tweets long, he went through the whole history of it, and it's pretty clear that this is still a work in progress. They're still trying to to figure out the the optimal scenario, and it's you know it's not clear whether or not there is an optimal scenario, and it's even less clear like what all the trade offs are going to be. But it is certainly clear that. If you are running a a fully validating node on ethereum right now it is going to become exponentially more expensive to be what i'm seeing referred to as a top level node um, because the top level node would have to validate uh, not only the what is the current ethereum blockchain but then the beacon chain and all of the shard chains which i'm also seeing conflicting information about but it seems like they're currently targeting uh, 1,024 shards. So 1,024 instances of the Ethereum virtual machine potentially doing 15 transactions per second. So say, you know, throughput maxes out around 15,000 transactions per second. You're going to need a Craig Wright level node, you know, a $20,000 something odd node in order to be able to, to validate all of that stuff yourself. And I, I think almost nobody is going to be doing that.
0: Well, we both know Craig Wright might do it, <laughs> but uh, no, but it's really funny that you mentioned that because I, I finally met Craig Wright for the first time. This was recently, uh, probably a couple of months ago when I was in London Uh, I was visiting London. Some of the guys put together a dinner uh, because I was in town. They invited Craig Wright for fun, and he said yes. (laughs) And as funny as that conversation went, I was sitting next to him all throughout the dinner of like 10, 15 people at the table. Him and I agreed on everything except what is Bitcoin. Like, we we, we can sit there across the table from each other and like talk shit about Ethereum all day. Like, he hates this thing as much as, I do, or many other Bitcoin maximalists do. So there is some commonality, even with, um, you know, when you do it, if you ever do end up sitting at a table with Craig Wright, um, and you want to find some commonality, start talking about some of these altcoins. And it's actually, it can be pretty enjoyable conversation, to say the least. I know people are still mad at me for saying this, but it was fun. Well, like listening to him talk about how bad Ethereum is, uh, it it was actually pretty interesting. But um. But then, uh, so the other thing I was going to say is, I remember, I was actually at the very first scaling event in Montreal, I believe it was in 2015, I'm not sure, if, I, I, if you were there, I don't believe you were a speaker. Um, no, um,
2: that was the only one I didn't make it to.
0: Ah, okay, so I thought, uh, my memory's pretty good, but I don't remember meeting you there. So that's when Vlad Zanfier introduced sharding for the first time and spoke about it publicly on stage, that was 2015. Uh, so I still remember that, and I remember all the discussions that took place kind of after that. Um, all right, so let's uh, change gears slightly and stick with the proof of stake mechanism. Now, you're not an economist, and there, there will be a, an Ethereum part four. This is an Ethereum part three, guys. In part one, we talked about the regulatory uh, problem of Ethereum with it being a security, the way it was financed. In part two, Johnny Billy and I, discussed the concept of smart contracts and why smart contracts don't really need to be decentralized because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, There's no censorship in your contract. just maybe the money that you need to pay for those contracts. This is focused on the technology. So I will will, uh, bring up the proof of stake conversation in my fourth episode, which is going to focus on economics, hopefully with an actual economist, why proof of stake is more of either a communist system or uh, more of a, you know, you just get free Ethereum for holding Ethereum system. But from a technological perspective, what do you think about proof of stake versus proof of work? I, 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 I find it hard to apprehend how people are taking proof of stake seriously. The technological innovation of Satoshi Nakamoto's blockchain was proof of work. That is the innovation. Like proof of stake, it's been done for and forever. Like, like, where is the innovation? Where is the technological innovation of proof of stake?
2: Right. Um, so a lot of people, of course, get upset about proof of work because they consider it to be a waste of energy. They consider it to be harmful to the environment, and you know, you can come up with all kinds of metrics to make an argument that. That uh, from an energy efficiency standpoint, Bitcoin is less efficient than any n- number of other financial systems. But uh, the thing about proof of stake that is appealing to people is that you know they can be running their system basically without requiring any sort of inputs, you know, externalities, I guess, if you will. They have their fully self enclosed ecosystem that, that nobody else can screw with. Um, the downside is that you run into a number of of problems of incentive. And of course, I always end up going back to Andrew Polstra's uh, proof of stake versus proof of work paper from years ago in which he was making arguments that, you know, long range attacks are the primary problem that you run into within a proof of stake system. And actually Vitalik himself has referenced this on a number of occasions and he called it the nobility problem. And this basically means like if you ever have a point in time where someone controls an inordinate um, proportion of the the value of the system, they can always in the future, even if they sell off all the value that they have, they can always do a long range attack that starts from that point in time and rolls forward. And, and so this was actually, um, a way that a number of the early naive proof-of-stake systems worked uh, or were attacked is that you know someone would just go back in the blockchain weeks or months um, after after they had already sold off all their coins and then said okay i'm creating a new chain from this point in time when i held a lot of money and um, and you can basically rewrite history at no cost because Uh, You know your CPU can be generating these blocks probably hundreds of blocks per second um, because there's no real proof of work required Um, So what what ends up happening is that you you start creating This sort of Rube Goldberg machine to deal with all of the new edge cases that that come from uh, nefarious things that a proof-of-stake attacker could do and and Actually, if you look at Vitalik's uh, tweet storm that I was talking about, he concedes that they ended up abandoning trying to solve the long-range attack problem, and they rather they just introduced a new security assumption, which is that, you know, we will just make it so that no client will ever accept uh, blocks that are more than like, I think, 20 or 30,000 blocks old. So we we just kind of, you know, have an implicit type of checkpoint there. Um, And, you know, maybe that's good enough. Um, It's really hard to argue about this um, because you you can't really know whether it's good enough until it gets attacked and and it fails. Um, and, And so really what you find if you're looking at like the current cutting edge state of proof of stake research is that they're trying to figure out how to do the best Slashing conditions, which is a fancy term for saying penalization uh, conditions, and um, trying to figure out how to only penalize the bad actors without penalizing uh, good actors who like accidentally went offline for a while and stopped doing their job. It, it, it just you, you start going down this rabbit hole that gets insane, and that 's like why they 've been still doing this research and, and pivoting. Uh, for the past three or four years now, um, maybe it is a solvable problem, uh, but as far as I and most of the other people I talk to can tell, it still has not been fully solved. But uh, you know, kudos to Vitalik and, and Vlad and all the other team for uh, keeping at it. Um, you know, maybe they will finally solve it and we'll be able to make all of the tree huggers happy and everybody can switch to a proof of stake system and we don't require any more electrical generation to go on. But of course, there's plenty of counter arguments to that. Uh, you know, I would, I would say Bitcoin actually incentivizes people to, uh, to find cleaner, more efficient forms of power generation.
0: Yeah, that's always been the argument that I have been trying to use in that uh, Bitcoin will drive the innovation in not only energy generation and energy consumption, but also you know uh, hy- um, hydrodynam- uh, thermodynamics and let's say cooling of your heated equipment. Like there's, there could be so much innovation there that I'm really looking forward to. So this is the paper that I have on the screen right now that you were referring to from and- Andrew Polstra, correct? That's the one. All right, so I'll throw that in the video description. I don't know if I'm gonna go out searching for their Twitter war, um, uh, but uh, please, I encourage you to go and do that. So because of all of these concerns, and it sounds like they're still researching this thing, does that explain this amazing Google search of Ethereum delays the difficulty bomb? Mm -hmm. And uh, once again, uh, continuously, because I thought that Ethereum was supposed to be on a proof of stake system a year ago. And what was going to force them to get there was this difficulty bomb rendering their mining useless and they continue to delay it. Um, any thoughts on this? What, uh, have you heard anything? What's the latest news? Is it going to be, is it like the debt ceiling that gets us delayed? delayed? Yeah,
2: exactly. It's no. like, um, you know, what's the point in even having a debt ceiling or a difficulty bomb? Like we all know that you're not going to let your network commit suicide uh, because you did not reach a technical achievement in the time that you thought it was going to happen. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's, there, the, I'm not gonna like criticize them for saying that you know they should have gotten it done by now. It's like when you're when you're doing stuff that nobody's ever done before, it's really hard to come up with timeframes. I just I think it's weird that they keep putting this difficulty bomb back in. I mean, it, why not just take it out so that you can admit that we don't know how long it's going to take to get to where we're going? Um, I don't know. It's. Um, it's kind of a, a weird uh, aspect of Ethereum. You know, like they've already set the precedent that whenever they get close to the difficulty bomb, it's going to get taken out. Um, at this point, it's, it's hard to say when they're going to be willing to do a, a full transition to uh, proof of stake. And, uh, you know, the story keeps changing, it seems like, on a, an annual basis. So I would be surprised if, if we're sitting here a year from now and they have completed the transition. But maybe a year from now, it will be in sight and it will be scheduled. But like, I still have a conceptual
0: difficulty believing that they can ever go to proof of stake. I mean, Ethereum, even though it's down like 90% or whatever, uh, one Ethereum is still like 100 to $200. And I believe they're mining three Ethereum every 12 to 15 seconds, whatever their blocks are. So how do you just show up and tell, you know, a giant mining facility that's invested millions of dollars to just point their hardware somewhere else.
2: Yeah, um, I think a few things could happen. We we very easily could end up with, you know, another Ethereum Classic situation Um, or maybe Ethereum Classic, you know, becomes much greater and, and a lot of the proof of work transitions over there. But you know, also there's, I, I think quite a few other altcoins that can be GPU mined and they might be able to soak up a lot of that demand. Um, but there was actually, I think a, a meeting very recently in which it seemed like there was pretty strong consensus to decrease the mining reward in Ethereum. So we may see uh, a, a decrease there, you know, another, economic disincentive for proof-of-work miners to stick with Ethereum.
0: Yeah, no, I've always said for probably a couple of years now, I envision another Ethereum. We already have ETC. ETH will stay with Vitalik because wherever he goes, he's trademarked for ETH. And I envision an ETW, Ethereum work, where the miners are going to try and convince all of the current ICOs to stay on the Ethereum proof-of-work chain. I think it will be a little challenging to get your ICOs to convert to another blockchain like an Ethereum Classic, like an EOS, like a Tezos or a Waves or all of them. And lately I've been saying these ICOs that become platforms for other ICOs, uh, like all the ones I just named, they're going to be totally fungible and your company's Uh, unlicensed security in the form of your ICO can just transition from one to the other to the other with all of them slowly becoming technologically unstable over time until some centralized solution shows up. Or at this point, I think Ethereum would almost be better served as a centralized, scalable solution to run all of these ICO smart contracts because none of these ICO smart contracts are actually decentralized. They're centralized by the company creating the ICO. So wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it make better business sense for Ethereum to centralize their product and offer their services for a fee of moving all of the stock around, uh, like all of these securities around?
2: Maybe I mean uh, so there's of course the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance uh, could potentially you know create their their own network for that. Um, really, uh, it seems to me like you know stuff like EOS, which is even more centralized uh, but has much greater capacity for throughput uh, could could pick up a lot of this ICO slack. but uh, kind of a counterpoint though for the incentives, is that if a lot of these ICOs are holding a lot of value in Ether, then they could be incentivized to switch to a proof-of-stake system. And basically, Ethereum would become uh, you know, secured by the ICOs themselves. Yeah, no, that
0: is an interesting thought to consider. And it's also great that you said EOS is you know, more centralized with a lot more throughput. And that makes sense because decentralization comes at a cost. It comes at a security cost and it comes at scalability cost. You have to weigh those costs and Bitcoin isn't willing to budge on decentralization uh, side of the equation, and which is why the focus is on the Lightning Network and scaling your, trend, scaling your transactions as a second layer protocol, as long as that second layer protocol can be just as decentralized, probably even more fungible and anonymous and have a lot more uh, transaction throughput. And then it's a done deal. Bitcoin can actually scale.
2: Well, maybe it all just comes down to marketing.
0: Yeah, no, that is interesting. Um, all right, any um, final general thoughts? I mean, uh, you remember the DAO, I mean, I'll, I'll give the floor to you as far as you know, the technology and the competency of the Ethereum. I know developers don't like to talk bad about other developers. Mm-hmm. I once asked Eric Lombroso on a live interview the following question. Um, I, I didn't wanna put him on the spot. I said, are there any altcoin um, developers that you truly respect? Um, and he, <laughs> he avoided the question. I think I meant it specifically in the case of Bcash, uh, but I'm not going to go there. But is there anything else you want to talk about from the DAO hack, from the parity wallet hack, from the MyEther wallet hack uh, to anything else you think that why do people continue to trust the technology underlying Ethereum with these grand hopes that just almost ne- that just aren't deliverable?
2: Yeah, uh, well, it's just a very different mindset. And, uh, you know, as I look out across this uh, diverse ecosystem of different networks, um, I also see a diversity of different perspectives and ideologies. And in general, I think it's fair to say that Ethereum is a much more social uh, network, you know, social ideology. And that's why Vitalik and and a lot of the other developers are willing to make certain trade-offs with regard to consensus um, where they're, they're turning it into more of a social consensus of saying, you know, we're going to have a bunch of of fairly well-known actors that are going to be, you know, putting skin in the game. And then we're just going to try to figure out how to help coordinate these actors and, um, that's a, you know, a stark contrast to a, a Bitcoin style ideology where it's more like, you know what, uh, we have the protocol and, and everyone is either going to follow the protocol or they're going to fork off and, you know, you're, you, you get burned if you, if you don't stay in consensus with everyone else. So I think that, you know, a lot of these things, they're valid um, and it's, it's hard to make, you know, technical arguments uh about them that necessarily convince people who have that other perspective um, and i just take a very long-term view on it of you know these things are going to get attacked and the ones that survive were good enough and the ones that die were obviously not good enough and that's you know time is going to have the ultimate say and in, in which of these perspectives is, is workable
0: all right. And uh, one more question I forgot to ask earlier. Did, if, as you read over the 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 two articles by Stop and Decrypt, was there anything there you disagreed with? Was there anything there you felt was inaccurate?
2: Uh, well, you know, I first read it uh, when he first published it, and I didn't know whether or not it was accurate. But then, you know, I went back recently and, and read a lot of the, the technical FAQs and, and stuff from Ethereum developers, and... It, I would say that my perspective is about the same as his, um, that ultimately this new type of system creates a much smaller number of players who are able to actually validate the whole system and it results in the, the regular end user having to trust the system a lot more. And also, you know, the, the main point that I think he was making is that Unlike in Bitcoin, uh, if you're running one of these nodes in Ethereum, especially once it gets sharded, um, you, you can't reject <laughs> anything that goes wrong. You just have to go along with what you're told. And so it, it, once again, it comes down to these like very different perspectives, I guess, and how the network should operate and how the developers uh, extend them over time.
0: And I'll let you go on this one as a, uh, a long time uh, Bitcoiner as a developer within the blockchain space, uh, would you advise? Uh, would you ever build anything on top of or combined with Ethereum? Or advise anyone that it's actually a good idea?
2: Um, nothing that you want to scale out, uh, you know, to be a, a mainstream uh, application now. Um, if you actually look at one of CASA's recent blog posts, uh, we are going to add Ethereum support and that's because we have wealthy clients who will pay us to add Ethereum support. But we are actually in a conundrum because I spent over a year at BitGo working on Ethereum wallets and Ethereum infrastructure and it was a nightmare for a number of reasons and I wrote a very lengthy blog post about that and um, I really want to avoid trying to do multi-sig in a smart contract again because like some of the stuff that you were mentioning, there's there's no real guarantees, there's there's very poor um, you know auditability and correctness proofs, anything like that. And so we if we're going to be doing multi-sig in Ethereum, we want to have some sort of assurance that you know if there is a bug in the smart contract we're using, that the entire network is going to fork to fix it. Otherwise, you know, what guarantees do we have? We don't want to end up in another parity situation.
0: All right, uh, Jameson, thank you very much for coming on on this uh, third episode of Ethereum's Crypto Scam where we dove deep into the technology and the scalability of Ethereum. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, guys, if you really like the show, there will be more to come. Um, I am bringing back crypto scam slowly. This Ethereum series really got me stuck. I tried completing the technology of Ethereum is unsustainable over a year and a half ago. And I had a big problem getting the right guests. Uh, Those guests have finally arrived and uh, hopefully the show will flow going forward. Of course, you can check out all of my other podcasts on the ToneVase YouTube channel and the ToneVase podcast. Audio podcast stream. See you all on the next episode of Crypto Scam.